Well, if you would turn in your copy of the scriptures, or you can follow along on the screen, we're going to, uh, I'm going to be preaching from Joshua 21. We are preaching through the book of Joshua. I am preaching through the book of Joshua consecutively, as we do as a regular practice here. And we've come to this 21st chapter. It's a long chapter. It's not the type of chapter that you're going to come away from deeply moved in your soul, um, but we want to read through it, and then I'm going to open it up for us, and Lord willing, we will see what God has for us in terms of truths for our life in this chapter. So let's begin by reading Joshua 21, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites came to Eleazar the priest and to Joshua the son of Nun and to the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel. And they said to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, The Lord commanded through Moses that we be given cities to dwell in along with their pasture lands for our livestock. So by command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave to the Levites the following cities and pasture lands out of their inheritance. The lot came out for the clans of the Kohathites. So those Levites who were descendants of Aaron the priest received by lot from the tribes of Judah, Simeon, and Benjamin 13 cities. And the rest of the Kohathites received by lot from the clans of the tribe of Ephraim, from the tribe of Dan, and the half-tribe of Manasseh 10 cities. The Gershonites received by lot from the clans of the tribe of Issachar, and from the tribe of Asher, and from the tribe of Naphtali, and from the half-tribe of Manasseh and Bashan 13 cities. The Merarites, according to their clans, received from the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and the tribe of Zebulun, twelve cities. These cities and their pasture lands, the people of Israel, gave by lot to the Levites as the Lord commanded through Moses. Out of the tribe of the people of Judah and the tribe of the people of Simeon, they gave the following cities mentioned by name, which went to the descendants of Aaron one of the clans of the Kohathites who belonged to the people of Levi, since the lot fell to them first. They gave them Kariath Arba, Arba being the father of Anak, that is, Hebron, in the hill country of Judah, along with the pasture lands around it. But the fields of the city and its villages had been given to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, as his possession. And to the descendants of Aaron the priest, they gave Hebron, the city of refuge for the manslayer with its pasture lands, Libna with its pasture lands, Jatir with its pasture lands, Eshtemoa with its pasture lands, Holon with its pasture lands, Debir with its pasture lands, Ain with its pasture lands, Jatah with its pasture lands, Beth Shemeth with its pasture lands, nine cities out of these two tribes. Then out of the tribe of Benjamin, Gibeon with its pasture lands, Geba with its pasture lands, Anathoth with its pasture lands, and Almon with its pasture lands, four cities. The cities of the descendants of Aaron the priests were in all 13 cities with their pasture lands. As to the rest of the Kohathites, belonging to the Kohathite clans of the Levites, the cities allotted to them were out of the tribe of Ephraim. To them were given Shechem, the city of refuge, for the manslayer with its pasture lands in the hill country of Ephraim, Gezer with its pasture lands, Kibzaim with its pasture lands, Beth Horan with its pasture lands, four cities. And out of the tribe of Dan, Eltiki with its pasture lands, Gibbethon with its pasture lands, Ahijalon with its pasture lands, Gathrimmon with its pasture lands, four cities. 
And out of the half-tribe of Manasseh, Tanakh, with its pasture lands, and gath with its pasture lands, two cities. The cities of the clans of the rest of the Kohathites were ten in all with their pasture lands. And to the Gershonites, one of the clans of the Levites, were given out of the half-tribe of Manasseh, Golan in Bashan with its pasture lands, the city of refuge for the manslayer, and Bishtera with its pasture lands, two cities. And out of the tribe of Issachar, Kishion with its pasture lands, Debereth with its pasture lands, Jarmuth with its pasture lands, and Ganon with its pasture lands, four cities. And out of the tribe of Asher, Mishal with its pasture lands, Abdon with its pasture lands, Helkath with its pasture lands, and Rahab with its pasture lands, four cities. And out of the tribe of Naphtali, Kadesh in Galilee with its pasture lands, the city of refuge for the manslayer, Hamath Dor with its pasture lands, and Carton with its pasture lands, three cities. The cities of the several clans of the Gershonites were in all thirteen cities with their pasture lands. And to the rest of the Levites, the Merarite clans were given out of the tribe of Zebulun, Jachnim with its pasture lands, Kartah with its pasture lands, Dimna with its pasture lands, Nahalal with its pasture lands, four cities. And out of the tribe of Reuben, Bazer with its pasture lands, Jahaz with its pasture lands, Kedemoth with its pasture lands, and Mephoth with its pasture lands, four cities. And out of the tribe of Gad, Ramoth in Gilead with its pasture lands, the city of refuge for the manslayer, Mahanaim with its pasture lands, Heshbon with its pasture lands, Jazer with its pasture lands, four cities in all. As for the cities of the several Merarite clans, that is, the remainder of the clans of the Levites, those allotted to them were in all twelve cities. The cities of the Levites, in the midst of the possession of the people of Israel, were in all forty-eight cities with their pasture lands. These cities each had its pasture lands around it, so it was with all these cities. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Amen. That's the reading of God's word. Today, we end uh, the major section in Joshua, which spanned chapters 13 through 21, and described the Lord dividing up the land of Israel that they had conquered between its 12 tribes. And so far, as we've been working through this section the Lord has allotted portions in the land to 11 of the 12 tribes of Israel. And that we saw in chapters 13 all the way through chapter 19. But there was one tribe which hadn't received any land yet, namely the tribe of Levi. And this was purposeful. You see, the tribe of Levi had been taken out of Israel and set apart by God to be his special servants. All qualified males in the tribe of Levi would, for instance, take turns serving him at the tabernacle. And then within the tribe, one family, the family of Aaron, would serve as priests within the tabernacle. And then the rest of the Levites 
would attend to various other matters outside the tabernacle. And because they were God's special servants, the Lord had ordered that the Levites be supported out of the tithes and offerings that he received from the people as their divine ruler. And you can see this laid out in the Old Testament law. For instance, Numbers 18, Numbers 31 speak to the support of the Levites that was to come from the tithes and offerings of Israel. Of course, like everything else in God's law, these instructions were largely neglected by successive generations. And that meant that, tragically, often the Levites were left to live Um, to fend for themselves. However, this at least was the way that God intended for the Levites' needs to be met within the covenant community. But this still left one matter regarding the tribe of Levi unresolved. Their needs are provided out of Israel's tithes and offerings, but where are they going to live? All the other tribes had been given portions in the land to live in, but the Levites had not. And this is the matter, you see, which is addressed here in Joshua 21. In this chapter, the Lord designated cities in the land for the Canaanite or for the Levites to live in. And that is going to be the last matter that is addressed in this larger section. Once the Lord had allotted cities for the Levites to live in, the division of the land would be complete. So let's take a closer look at the chapter uh, to see what we can about these cities which the Lord allotted the Levites to live in. And then afterwards, we'll draw some lessons that I think we can see from it for us as Christians today. Now, the chapter opens in verses 1 through 3, if you look there, with the chief men of the tribe of Levi coming to Joshua at Shiloh, remember, That's the new home of the tabernacle and would be until it was captured by the Philistines in 1 Samuel 4. And these tribal chiefs of Levi go to Joshua and they remind him that, quote, the Lord commanded through Moses that we be given cities to dwell in along with their pasture lands for our livestock. So they're referring to a past event an event which was recorded in Numbers 35, 1 through 8, where the Lord had indeed commanded Israel through Moses to give to the Levites cities to live in when they took possession of the promised land. Now, upon hearing this reminder from the Levite chiefs, Joshua followed through on what the Lord had commanded through Moses. He cast lots to determine the 48 cities which the Lord wanted to give to the tribe of Levi to live in, along with their pasture lands. And the rest of the chapter, you see, is just reporting the results of that process. Now, in verses 4 through 8, this first part of the chapter, we're told how many cities would be given to the Levites and from which tribal territories those cities would come from. Now, just a little bit of background here. Remember, Levi was Jacob's third son, Reuben, Sibion, Levi. And Levi had three sons of his own, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. 
Now, the tribe in Israel, which descended from Levi and his three sons, was then divided into three clans made up of the descendants of his three sons. There's the Gershonites, the Kohathites, and the Merariites. Now, over time, the clan in Levi of Kohath became most prominent. And if you tick back in your mind, you might even remember that's because that was the tribe out of which Moses and Aaron were part. And Aaron's sons out of the tribe of Kohath became the priests in Israel. So in accordance with their prominent position in the tribe, verses 4 and 5 tell us that the Kohathites were allotted their cities first, and it tells us that they received more cities than all the other tribes. So 13 cities were allotted just to the priests, that one family within the tribe of Israel, and their cities come from the tribes of Judah, Simeon, and Benjamin, while 10 other cities are allotted to the rest of the Kohathites from the territories of Dan and Naphtali. So that's 25 cities to that one clan, the clan of Kohath. Next, you see the clan of Gershon was allotted 13 cities from the territories of Issachar, Asher, and Naphtali. That's verse 6. And then the clan of Merari was allotted 12 cities from the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Zebulun. Now, I want to show you a slide where you can see something interesting about the distribution of these cities. So I put this slide up there. The map on this slide doesn't tell you where the cities are located, but what it does is it tells you how many cities were donated, as it were, from each of the tribe's territories. And what you see pretty quick just by looking at the dots is that each tribe in Israel was required to give four cities. Um, Judah and Simeon are considered together because, remember, Simeon's territory was right smack dab in the middle of the tribe of Judah. The only hiccup to that pattern is that you see that Naphtali only gave three. And to make up for that missing city, Judah and Simeon had to give nine. So you can take that down. I think that if there's any meaning to that, it's just another hint at the prominence in Israel's history of this tribe of Judah, which of course points you forward to the arrival eventually of the great Messiah out of that tribe. So that first section ends with this summary in verse 8. It says, These cities and their pasture lands the people of Israel gave by lot to the Levites as the Lord had commanded through Moses. Now, in verses 9 through 42 most of the rest of the chapter, the author got more specific. So he went back through all 48 cities given to the three Levite clans and identified each city by name. Now, I don't see any need to go back and to examine in detail all of the names of these cities. You heard me read through them the best I could at the beginning. But there are a few things worth noting about them. So first, if you look at verses 9 through 12, we're told that one of the nine cities given to the clan of Kohath was indeed Kariath Arba. That was the city renamed by the Hebrews Hebron. But this is the city mentioned multiple times already in the book 
that Caleb took from those infamous Anakim, the giants in the land. So how could it now be given to the priests? And the author explains in verses 11 through 12 that while the city and its immediate pasture lands were indeed given to the priests, yet the fields and villages around it remained the territory and possession of Caleb and Israel. Next, the author made a point to tell us that all six cities of refuge that were mentioned in the previous chapter were among the 48 cities given to the Levites. So the cities of refuge were part of the cities given to the Levites. Now, why was that? Well, perhaps it was because, at least in theory, the Levites, as God's special servants, would be more likely to administer and uphold God's law in these cities of refuge than in other cities in Israel. Finally, there's something obvious about this list of cities that we really need to take note of. Even though the Levites were God's special servants and they were particularly tasked with serving him at the tabernacle, which was now in Shiloh, and then later at the temple, which would be in Jerusalem. Yet you see that their cities were not in that one region, but were scattered throughout the land. And there are probably at least two reasons for this. One is negative, one is positive. So negatively, the reason their cities were scattered throughout the land is actually because of the curse which God had placed upon the patriarchs, Simeon and Levi, way back in Genesis 49. I've mentioned this once before, but because Simeon and Levi, those two sons of Jacob, had slaughtered the Shechemites in anger over the rape of their sister Dinah, Jacob had cursed his two sons, Levi and Simeon, in Genesis 49, verse 7. And he declared that God would scatter them in Israel. Well, now we see here in Joshua 21 how God had fulfilled that ancient curse from hundreds of years before. He gave the Levites cities that were scattered throughout the land. But there's also a positive reason, I think, why the Levite cities were scattered throughout the territory of their brothers. It was part of the curse, but it also had a positive effect upon the nation. Because, you see, the ministry of the Levites was described by Moses way back in Deuteronomy 31. We're told what the Levites were supposed to do in the land. So he said to them, They shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law. They shall put incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar. In other words, the tribe of Levi were set apart by God as a whole tribe, both to facilitate the sacrificial system in the, temp in the tabernacle and later the temple, that's the priests, and we see to teach the law of God to the people wherever they were. So the nation as a whole was to support the Levites financially out of their tithes and offerings and by giving them these cities so that they might devote themselves to this twofold ministry full time. In other words, in theory at least, scattering the Levites throughout the land of Israel would promote the worship of God and 
fidelity to the covenant throughout the nation of Israel. Everywhere the Levites were, they were God's special ministers to make sure the tabernacle kept going and the worship of God there and to teach the people the law of God so that they might obey him. The chapter ends with these words, verses 43 through 45. Thus the Lord God gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Now this paragraph really doesn't just pertain to the designation of cities for the Levites to live in. What we're seeing here is the conclusion to everything that had happened in the book to that point. The conquest of the land and the division of the land. It's all being wrapped up here with this announcement that all of these events marked God fulfilling his covenant with Abraham to give the land of Canaan to his descendants. Look what it says, verse 45. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. It's worth noting that the author identified one element of the fulfillment of his promise to grant Israel the land. One element of that is that he gave them rest on every side. The author explained then what this rest looked like in verse 45. He says, Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. It was a rest that was marked by a final peace, a lack of of conflict. Now, obviously, this did not mean that they experienced no resistance from the land's remaining inhabitants, Uh, The text itself repeatedly tells us that they did experience resistance, but rather the point is that they had not lost a battle under Joshua's leadership, and now the Canaanite population dared no longer attack them anymore. As the author had put it back in chapter 18, verse 1, the land lay subdued before them. And in this way, the Lord had indeed, at this point, given to Israel a place of rest in the land of Canaan, just as he had said he would way back in chapter 1, verse 13. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Now, of course, there were elements of that ancient promise and covenant that he had made with Abraham that anticipated the new covenant and would not be fulfilled, therefore, until the arrival of Jesus Christ to inaugurate that new covenant in his death and resurrection. In other words, the rest which God now provided Israel in the land of Canaan was only a foretaste of a greater rest that he would give to his new covenant people through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, you see, now we know, died to redeem us from our sins and has risen again to secure our eternal life in perfect fellowship with God, a greater peace than just rests from our enemies on every side in battle. Indeed, 
If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, Jesus offers you this greater rest which only he can give. He famously said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The good news for you, unbeliever, is that if you will simply put your trust in God's eternal divine Son, Jesus Christ, repenting of your sins, He will give you forgiveness and peace with God forever. In other words, rest for your souls. And I hope you will answer His call this morning, if you have not done so already. But for us as believers, we look at Joshua 21, 43-45, this grand ending to this entire section of the book, which really marks a major turning point in all of redemptive history, when the Lord fulfilled the promise of the Abrahamic covenant after many centuries of waiting to give Abraham's descendants the land of Canaan. And this is an occasion there for us to reflect with amazement upon the commitment and the power of God to keep every one of his promises. Think of the promises that God has made to you, believer, and know he will bring them to pass. Well, having walked through the contents of Joshua 21, let's close by reflecting on some lessons that we can draw from this chapter today. And I want to encourage you. There are truths in Scripture that are most important truths. And then there are truths that are of secondary and third level importance. Uh, so to use an analogy, sometimes when, you're, um, when you own a vehicle, things go wrong. If the engine blows up, uh, that's something of primary importance. So we might talk a lot about what kind of engine we have. It's of first level importance. But we also know that there are other things about the car that can go wrong and the car will still run. They're of secondary or even third level importance. When it comes to Christian doctrines, there are truths that are of fundamental foundational importance and there are truths that are of secondary importance or even third level importance. But it doesn't mean that they're unimportant altogether, does it? In fact, it's important that we develop biblical convictions on at each level of Christian doctrine. Because in God's wisdom, he has taught us a variety of different things that are all important for our Christian life. In this te text, I want to draw out for you lessons that are of secondary importance, but are matters in which we have to have biblical convictions developed so that we can flourish in the Christian life. So I want to highlight two major lessons from this chapter. First, this chapter reflects the biblical principle that it is right for the covenant community of God's people to set apart and support qualified people from their midst so that those people can devote themselves to full-time ministry. That's really what this whole chapter is about, isn't it? Joshua 21 ties into a whole web of passages in the Old Testament which speak about how God had set apart the tribe of Levi 
to devote themselves to full-time ministry under the old covenant in the nation of Israel. There are other passages, passages like Numbers 1 through 4, where it lays out the duties of the Levites. Joshua 21, though, is one of a number of passages which speak about how the nation of Israel as a whole was to provide for the needs of these full-time ministers as they carried out their duties. It tells us that the cities of the Levites were to be given to them to live in, along with pasture lands for their livestock to grave in. Other chapters talk about how their physical needs were to be met through the tithes and offerings which Israel brought to the Lord at the tabernacle. And so in this way, you see, Joshua 21 is one of a number of texts which reflected a broader teaching in the Old Testament that under the Old Covenant, the community was to set apart and support the tribe of Levi financially so that that tribe then might in turn devote themselves to ministering before God and on their behalf full time. And this was all by God's design. Now, of course, when I say that, well, it's interesting for us because we know that that aspect of the Old Covenant points forward and reflects something that is also true under the New Covenant, with God's New Covenant community as well. In other words, just as God had ordained that some in Israel be set apart and supported financially by the community as a whole so that they could in turn devote themselves to ministering before God and on their behalf full-time under the old covenant? Well, so he has ordained something similar in the church as well, that the new covenant community of God's people would set apart and support financially uh, certain qualified people to serve in full-time New Covenant ministry. You know, some people might actually be surprised to hear that because they might have thought that, for instance, you know, paying pastors and missionaries and other church staff to devote themselves to full-time gospel ministry, that that was really more of a tradition than really a biblical directive. But actually, there's quite a bit of evidence of it in the New Testament. Especially, I need to say this so you know, it's not just me sort of telling you, giving you a hint or something, since I am one of these people. Uh, but I really want to bring this out, that this is actually a biblical principle that's important for our life as a church. Think about it. You remember when Jesus sent out the 72, not just the 12 apostles, but 72 hand-picked disciples to go before him and to preach the gospel in the towns of Israel? And he told them, don't bring provisions, but find people who will take you in and provide for your needs. And he said to them in Luke 10, 7, and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide for the laborer deserves his wages. Paul applied the same principle to pastors in the church who would labor in full-time gospel ministry at the end of his first letter to Timothy. 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18, he says this, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the labor deserves his wages. In other words, he quotes from Jesus in the matter of the 72 disciples and says the same principle applies with pastors. Those who labor full time should get their living from the covenant community. 
1 Corinthians 9 is perhaps the most striking and extensive of all. There, Paul spent a good deal of time establishing that those, like he and Barnabas, who were laboring in full-time gospel ministry, had a right to be financially supported by the churches they served, even though they did not always take advantage of that right, as in the church of Corinth, in order to avoid any hint that they were in it for the money. So listen to this passage. This is verses 7 through 14 of 1 Corinthians 9. It says, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure everything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. I hope you notice a particularly interesting thing about that text is that in that passage, Paul makes a direct parallel between, verse 13, those who are employed in the temple service, both the priests and other Levites, such as those in our text, right? A parallel between them and those who proclaim the gospel, who serve in full-time gospel ministry. And his point is that just as the Levites were remunerated for their temple service in Israel, well, so full-time gospel ministers in the church should be remunerated for their service to the covenant community. And actually, it's interesting, these texts, They're just a sampling. I could provide you with many other passages in the New Testament which undergird and bolster this by teaching and reflecting the same principle, namely that those in the covenant community whom they set apart to serve in full-time gospel ministry should then be in turn supported financially, have their needs provided for by the community just like the Levites were, for instance, in Joshua 21. Now, there are many Churches who have been resistant to paying people, to use the crass language, to serve in gospel ministry full time, whether as pastors or missionaries or other kinds of ministry roles. Now, sometimes that's because they think, "Uh, isn't that kind of crude, you know, being paid for gospel ministry? Sometimes that could be rooted in uh, a misguided notion that money in and of itself is bad not just the love of money. Others are resistant because they are aware of the very real temptation, right, to serve in gospel ministry for the money. Perhaps they've even had bad experience of someone doing that and want to avoid it in the future, so they just don't set apart people to devote themselves to full-time ministry and then support them uh, out of the church's own resources. But what is implied in Old Testament passages like Joshua 21 about the Levites 
and made explicit in many New Testament passages is that setting people aside to serve in full-time gospel ministry in the church as the new covenant community and providing for them out of the resources of the church so that they can do that, that's not only not wrong, it's actually right for the church to do that. It's important for our church to do that if possible. Indeed, those churches who would resist doing that in principle, out of a matter of principle, not out of necessity, according to Paul here in 1 Corinthians 9, for instance, would actually be acting contrary to God's instructions to the church in the scripture. But that leads us to a second question. Why would God instruct both Old Covenant community and New Covenant community to do this? To set people apart and support them so that they can devote themselves to ministry full time. Well, that's the second lesson that I think we learn from Joshua 21. It reminds us why it is God's design for there to be certain people who are devoted to full-time gospel ministry and supported so that they can do that in the covenant community. Now, we saw in our text that God had given the Levites cities that were scattered throughout the land of Israel. He clearly wanted them to be out there among the people. Wherever the people lived, he wanted Levites there. Why? Well, I've already mentioned this, right? Joshua 21 doesn't actually tell us explicitly why. It just tells us that they were out there. But when you look at what God wanted the Levites to be doing, for instance, Deuteronomy 31, verse 10, you see why. God had said that the Levites were to teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law. They shall put incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar. In other words, not only were the Levites to take turns serving at the tabernacle in Shiloh and then later in Jerusalem, and of course the priests were there full time, but they were also to teach the people God's law. Wherever they lived in the land, they were to be there, telling the people what God's will was for them, encouraging them and instructing them in obedience to the covenant. So you see what I'm saying? That the ministry of the Levites was designed to not only preserve the worship of God at the tabernacle and sustain that, but also to promote fidelity to the Old Covenant everywhere in the land of Israel. There's no way they could do that if they're working a farm or a shop in town and trying to fit all that into the extra time that they might have. No, the work of their ministry was so extensive and so vital, it required them to be set apart for full-time ministry under the Old Covenant. Now, once again, I want to argue... That God's reasoning for setting apart the Levites in Israel for full-time ministry under the Old Covenant, well, that reflects his reason for setting apart people such as pastors and missionaries and other church staff in our, in our context for full-time ministry in the church under the New Covenant. So, for instance, the New Testament is explicit that some pastors are to be set apart and supported by the church so that they can devote themselves to full-time ministry, right? The elders who rule well are worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the teaching and preaching of the word. Well, the ministry that they are to devote themselves to is shepherding, caring for, leading the church of God, teaching them the word of God, right? Preach the word in season and out, out of season, teaching 
them to observe everything that I have commanded. Well, this pastoral ministry is so vital to the survival and to the flourishing of the church, not because the pastors are somehow so important themselves, but the work they're doing. It's teaching the word of God, shepherding the flock, leading the flock, that they have to devote themselves to it full time, at least some of them. All, if all of the elders, for instance, all the pastors in a local church were bivocational men, right? Serving in a full-time job, probably married, probably having kids, and then trying to fit pastoral ministry into whatever little pockets of time they have left over, right? That's going to leave the church without the care and instruction that they need to flourish. Now, a situation like that might be necessary for a period of time, right? There just ain't any resources. But with such a situation is not ideal, and therefore every church should be striving, if possible, to set apart some of their pastors, at least one, to devote themselves full-time to their ministry. You know, I think of how the apostles told the Jerusalem church in Acts 6-2, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And while Paul worked as a tent maker when he first got to Corinth for a while, because he had to, with Priscilla and Aquila, yet it says in Acts 18.5 that when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, whoop, Paul was occupied with the word, it says. In other words, for a while it was necessary for him to work to provide for his own needs. He didn't want to provide a stumbling block to the people he's ministering to, but as soon as he was freed up to do it by his fellow team members, he devoted himself full-time to the ministry of the word. And At least some pastors, it seems even from 1 Timothy 5, should be doing the same in each local church, if at all possible. And really, it doesn't stop with pastors, right? The needs of the church often require it to set people apart for other kinds of full-time ministry roles as well. For instance, if we're going to be part of the Great Commission of bringing the gospel to the nations, how are we going to do it, right? If we don't set people apart and support them financially to go and to do that work. And we could also say, I'll tell you this, our church would fall apart if we didn't have Debbie serving full-time, or at least part-time, taking care of all the administrative things. Believe me, you do not want me trying to do all that. You see, in the church, as in Israel, God has designed it so that certain people be set apart and supported for full-time ministry, like the Levites were in Israel, so also in the church, Why? In order to sustain the worship of the church and to promote the church's fidelity to Jesus Christ. Now, at some times and some places, that may not be possible, but in general terms, it does seem to be God's design from the Scripture, both under the Old Covenant and under the New Covenants. The practice is not just a matter of human tradition, right? Or pragmatic strategy. It has clear biblical support. And while most churches don't deliberately reject that principle, this aspect of God's design, if a church does do that, willingly neglects it, um, it's going to be contrary to their own flourishing, regardless of whatever their intentions are for it. So just as Israel needed full-time gospel ministers uh, or full-time ministers in the Levites to sustain and promote the faithful worship of God under the Old Covenant, Well, so also the church needs full-time ministers 
uh, pastors, missionaries, others to sustain and promote the faithful worship and service of God under the New New Covenant. Well, in conclusion, we've looked at Joshua 21 this morning where the Lord instructs Israel to allot cities for the Levites to live in as they devoted themselves to full-time ministry under the Old Covenant. And it's reminded us of the fact that something similar should be happening in the church as well, as we see in the New Testament. It's important for the flourishing of the church. This is critical to the promotion of worship and faithfulness to God in the New Covenant, just as it was under the Old Covenant. Well, let me close us in prayer. And as I'm doing that, can the men who are going to come up and serve the Lord's Supper please join me up at the front. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture where we see that you had made provision for the Levites to be set aside in Israel to serve in Old Covenant ministry with their whole lives. And we thank you that you have given us the same pattern in the New Covenant for our good. And I thank you, Lord, that you have given us the resources to do that here at Cow Creek. And we pray that this would become, even as a result of our discussion today, a biblically-based conviction that we would see its rightness and we would see its goodness, how it promotes the flourishing of the church. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.